from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 14, Destroy All Monsters. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm brian scherschel and i'm nathan marchand and in this episode we will be covering destroy all monsters from 1968 yeah this is a huge epic movie yeah it's a very landmark very landmark film very good uh, overall lots of lots of action in this one yeah, yeah, it's quite exciting. The related topics for this episode are the student demonstrations of the late 1960s, the Bonin or Ogasawara Islands being returned to Japan, and the highest percent GDP growth ever in the history of Japan. First, we will be doing our part one, which is a short description of the film. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is part of an ensemble cast of kaiju. His co-stars include Rodan, Mothra, Angaris, Minya, Gorosaurus, Kumanga, Manda, Baragon, and Varan. At first they're contained on Monsterland, but they then become mind-controlled pawns of the invading Keelox. Later, they're controlled by the humans. King Ghidorah is summoned to Earth under the Keelox's control. When the mind-control technology is destroyed, the Earth monsters instinctively attack the Keelox's. The monsters are more a force of nature than they are characters, unless they are under the control of the Keelox, which makes them very destructive. Katsuo Yamabe, captain of the Moonlight SY-3, is the protagonist and the hero of the human plotline. Katsuo's sister, Kyoko, is a technician on Monsterland who is mind-controlled by the Keelox and used as their emissary. Dr. Yoshida is a UNSC scientist who plays a central role in assisting Katsuo and the humans against the Keelox. The Keelok Queen is a ruthless and very confident ruler who seeks to establish a new, quote, scientific civilization, end quote, on Earth. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified. The story revolves around the monsters, whether it involves studying, controlling, attacking, or containing them. Aside from the characters occasionally fighting the Keeloks and their mind-controlled minions, the kaiju are their main focus. Militaries are unable to defend cities around the world as they come under attack. The crew of the SY-3 attack a Keelok base on the moon and neutralize the machine controlling the monsters. Under human control, the kaiju are sent to Mount Fuji to destroy the Keelok base, but the aliens summon King Ghidorah. The Earth monsters battle Ghidorah, killing him. A Keelok flying saucer called a Fire Dragon destroys the machine controlling the monsters, but it's shot down by the SY-3. Godzilla destroys the Keelok base. The script co-written by Takeshi Kimura and Ashiro Honda is a straightforward science fiction thriller. The plot is simple and fast-paced. Unlike a typical Shinichi Sekizawa script, most of the conflicts are resolved by the humans using the kaiju. The film is given a healthy budget of 200 million yen. The special effects were directed by Eiji Tsuburaya, who went all out with his trademark suitmation, miniatures, puppets, and animations. Multiple cities outside of Japan were recreated. The Tokyo set in particular was massive and expansive. The climactic kaiju battle is an epic tour de force featuring incredible choreography between suit actors, puppeteers, and technicians. A little stock footage was used, though. 
Since it was co-written by Kimura, the story is much darker and more serious than the previous scripts penned by Sekizawa. There's little, if any, humor to alleviate the gravity of the Keylock's invasion. Once again, despite the science fiction trappings, the film is quite fantastical. This wasn't an experimental film because it was simply a bigger, amalgamated version of several previous entries in the Godzilla franchise. The film reinforces the style of the Godzilla series by featuring alien invaders using mind-controlled kaiju as weapons, as in Invasion of Astro Monster. With their popularity waning and ideas running dry, this was intended to be the final entry in the Godzilla series and a culmination of Toho's other kaiju films. By including other monsters from Toho's pantheon, it tied many of the studio's kaiju films together to attract a wider audience. The film grossed 230 million yen and sold 2.6 million tickets, compared to Astro Monster's 3.8 million tickets and Son of Godzilla's 2.5 million tickets, when released in Japan August 1st, 1968 on double bill with a reissue of 1963's Atragon. American International Pictures released the dub version May 23rd, 1969 in the United States. The film was a frequent feature on American television until the 1980s and resurfaced on the Sci-Fi Channel in 1996. The film was beloved by kaiju fans. The dub version is remarkably close to the Japanese original. The opening credits, complete with Ifukabe's opening march, were moved to the end of the film. The first line in the opening narration was changed from It's the end of the 20th century to The year is 1999. The shot of Minya covering his eyes as Ghidorah drops Angerus from the sky was deleted. The kaiju are corralled on Monsterland, an island facility where they can be safely studied until it's attacked by the Keylocks. The aliens plant mind-control devices the size of ball bearings in humans and larger ones across the world disguised as coconuts, among other things, to control the monsters. The humans have established a lunar base, which is threatened by the Keylock's presence. Ashira Honda's trademark Brotherhood of Man ideal is the film's strongest theme, which is expressed in humanity banding together to fight the Keylocks and in the Earth Kaiju's alliance against King Ghidorah. The terrifying use of mind control, including a forced suicide, adds some horror. The Keylocks wish to establish a new advanced civilization on Earth, saying this requires that some humans must die in the process. Ultimately, nature helps destroy the invaders. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion on the film in question. So, Brian, what do you think of this one? I like it quite a lot. I mean, it, it, you almost have to uh, from a certain kind of direction if you really are a fan of any of these kinds of movies or if you're a fan of the Godzilla series. But it's you, you can definitely tell somebody else wrote it. Yeah. It's definitely a different kind of movie. It's in the, it's in the same vein as Astro Monster, definitely. Uh, it's just a different different version of that, I would say. Yeah, it's... It's interesting watching these movies in chronological order and seeing them in context because anytime we watch something that's written by Kimura, it really sticks out, especially since this is a Kimura script that's coming at us after a long string of Sakazawa. There's there's very little, if any, humor in this. It's such a serious movie. There's nothing really entertaining from a humorous end at all. There's there's none of that light Sekizawa kind of writing in it. No, it's it's not to say that this movie isn't fun. It certainly is fun, but it's not necessarily one that that is intentionally funny at any point. 
Right. I think it's very much more concentrated on just a few things. And we're trying to get across that epicness of the, of the battles and just of the, of the widespread action. I mean, there, there's a lot of action that starts right away in the movie. Too. Yeah. I mean, we don't get that, that just like, like in, um, Ghidorah, the three headed monster, there's a big warm up to all, all the events that happen as far as the action. And this, we don't get that warm up. It's just action, uh, interspersed pretty well throughout. Yeah, the the action sequences are are pretty well uh, peppered throughout the entire movie. There's there is a little bit of intrigue in this, though. The keylocks are much more direct by comparison to say the Zillions. This movie also does resemble the Mysterians, though. I mean, we we yeah. have an invading sort of force of relatively small number of beings, that, and then they they create a base. In the Mysterians' case, it was more they were in charge of the area that they had. Yeah. But with this, we're in charge of everything. Yeah. And so it's uh, it's different in that respect. But it did, I don't know, the the and the scenes with the base and stuff. It just reminded me quite a bit of the Mysterians. Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of this movie. I like it quite a bit. It's actually one that I saw a little bit later in my fandom. I was uh, I did not see it when it was on television it's one that i remember hearing about and always wanted to see but never had the opportunity to do it until it was finally released on video in 1998 and i remember purchasing that vhs copy and being very excited about seeing it it was it was well worth the wait because it was it was just so huge so epic it also allowed me a chance to see a lot of Toho Kaiju I hadn't seen by that point. You know, it was the first time I got to see Baragon and Varan and Gorosaurus and some of these some of these other. Yeah, monsters. I had not seen either, any any of those before I saw yeah. this movie. I don't think. Yeah, and I think for for a lot of Godzilla fans, that was that might have been the you know the same with them. Although not having grown up with creature double features being shown every weekend or with cable and whatnot, you know, it was a little bit harder for me to do that. Although I have to admit, and I hate to say this, but I do find myself liking the movie just a little bit less now, but more because of how the story is handled, you know, and how the characters are presented. At the end of the day, there's not as much real meat going on. In it. There's a lot of action, though. There's a lot of plot. Yeah, it's very much a plot-driven movie, which is, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with plot-driven movies. Also, it's meant to be a celebration of monsters, you know, and they and they get to go back to a more standard sixty-seven, sixty-six. Those were really different. Yeah, it although it does have a little bit of the trappings of the two previous movies because there is a large portion of the movie that does take place on an island. And this was when that, the concept of all of the monsters living on an island together is, is established. And that's a, a big part of the Godzilla mythos. A lot of the things I like with this movie, they're associated with uh, the action that takes place in it. Uh, 34 minutes and 30 seconds into the movie. That's where the sequence where the monsters destroy Tokyo occurs. And I honestly think that that is one of the absolute best sequences in all of Kaiju cin- cinema period. 
I have to agree with you there. It's it is wonderful to watch that. That set is gigantic. And you had all of those monsters running in there. You had suit actors, puppets. You had the the Roman candle pyrotechnics going off. I it just And then I'm pretty sure that's in this does take place in the future, but it does definitely look like the Tokyo monorail. Yeah. Uh, but also the, the and the, the part where it shows the traffic moving on the streets and, and there and like the detail of all the models. But there's a lot of time and work that went into that and it it does pay off significantly. And the thing that astonishes me the most is and I don't know if I was just so engrossed in the movie I wasn't thinking about this, but there was never a point when I was watching that where I thought this is a sound stage. No. It's it, it just sucks you right in. You're just in awe of everything that you're seeing because I don't think they had ever done a cityscape that was quite that large before, not or at least not in a very long time. Overall, the effects are really good. I love the effects. They're absolutely beautiful. And then that at the end, the mural of uh, Mount Fuji, that is really beautiful. That is an amazing matte painting. I can't say this enough. If I could have a mat, a, a high-quality matte painting as a decoration in my house, I would definitely go for one. And this one for Mount Fuji just looks wonderful. And it's great to see Mount Fuji again in this. Mount Fuji always gets reserved for only the lar- the biggest and most important of kaiju battles, it seems, because we saw it before in King Kong versus Godzilla. Also, we don't really go anywhere else in, in Japan, uh, at least not much. I mean, we go to Izu for a little bit, but that's really not a... We aren't traveling to other Japanese cities in this movie. It's uh, very centered on Tokyo. Very much so. One of the other things that this movie is noteworthy for is we do get glimpses of the kaiju attacking cities all over the world. Now, the the sets for those aren't nearly as large as the as the Tokyo set, but... We still get to see Subaraya and his technicians recreate these other cities. We get to see Moscow and Paris, and most noteworthy would be New York City. So Godzilla, the original Godzilla, visits New York before the American abomination gets there. I, I just think that's kind of funny. And he destroys the UN building. Yeah, that's which kind is of a very big symbolic deal. because it's it's the UN that controls uh, Ogasawara Island too. Yeah, yeah, it's extremely memorable. It's a very extremely memorable sequence uh, of all of these uh, different cities, and then the, they show uh, Mothra attacking the train. They have all the monitors going when Katsuo and the other uh, astronauts come to Ogasawara to see what's going on, and it's I think it's funny how like Minia is right there in the center screen. Uh, out, out of all those, it's kind of funny, but uh, yeah, it's it's a very memorable beginning of the movie too, and just because the action starts pretty much right away, the, this this movie does a very good job at showing us all the stuff that we've been wanting to see for a while. Yeah, most definitely. There are a number of gun battles uh, in this, and it also just ramps up the action more because there are, there are a lot of movies out by this point that had these kinds of gun battles. So it's good to have it. I like I like the fact that the the key locks and the people they were con- in control of had uh, futuristic weapons. I yeah, that was nice. I think those props actually get reused a little bit later 
but it, so it, but they were brand new in this one and it helped to add some flavor to the movie and it, it did definitely did keep the the excitement ramped up there's a gun the gun battle that's on the beach is really good too and then like at the end it, it shows the boat that's that's speeding away with uh Kyoko and company on it and i thought especially considering all of them are so arrogant now that they're under the control of the Keylocks. I thought that was a really missed opportunity where we could have gotten like a so long suckers out of them (laughs) because that's a perfect time to do it. It doesn't sound like a very Kimura thing to do, unfortunately. Maybe Sekizawa, Mm -hmm. but... It was just a little bit different just having the boat just go, you know, in the distance away. Yeah. And I thought, oh. I actually love how that how that scene starts. In fact, I even wrote in my notes that it looked almost looked like something you would see in a Bond film where it's just this close-up of Kyoko's golden sho- uh, golden shoes walking down the beach and then it pans up and you see her. You know, so yeah. it adds a little bit of mystery at the beginning there and has some very nice imagery. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I I and I was thinking to myself, I forgot about that about that shot and how good it was. <laughs> so it was, it was a pleasant surprise seeing it again. There are a number of other good shots that I saw in the movie. Uh, one of them is at uh, 2608 or so into the movie where they have a uh, Dr. Otani there and they're trying to get information out of him. And they do, they do it at least twice. There's uh, this sort of lattice that Otani is sitting in front of and they they make the camera just right so that the faces of Jun Tazaki and Akira Kubo are they fit right into those holes that are in the lattice. Oh yes. And I thought okay that's really stylish. Not so much related to the action but it is kind of during the action there is a really sleek nice part at 4536 in the movie where the model military machines all park at their destination. And then these two guys actually come from behind the vehicle and look at stuff, and then they go back. That is a really good-looking composite. It's very convincing, because you know that those vehicles that, that are there are not real. And yet we, we, they bothered to do that, that nice uh, composite. I thought that was very good-looking. There's a lot of good composite shots in general in this movie. I don't think they're all as effective as that one. But just the fact that they're they're doing a lot of these composites, I I just thought was great. You know, putting the actors, these extras, into the uh, the model sets to add a, an extra layer of believability to them. You know, to create help create the illusion. And going off of that, I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, the actual battle sequence that they have after that because you see both Angerus and Godzilla are interacting a lot with those tanks. So you get to see Nakajima and the Angerus suit actor are actually, you know, physically pounding on these models and doing stuff with them. It's not something you see quite as often. Usually they get destroyed from a distance or something like that. But in this, they're physically manhandling mm-hmm. the tanks. It does look really good. So that that was uh, that was a lot of fun. The <laughs> I don't know if this was supposed to be serious or not but going back to talking about the gun battles a little bit so maybe it's unintentionally funny but the that guy in monster land who gets shot in the head 
Did you think that his expression actually looked a little bit funny when that happened? It does look a little bit goofy. He just has this weird look on his face, like, Ooh. Yeah, it, it, pro- <laughs> it probably does elicit a little bit of a laughter, maybe, but... I don't think it was meant to be funny, but... No. It just looks um, kind of weird to me. I was like, so this is how people react when they get shot in the head. Okay. Well, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I've never seen somebody get shot in the head. Yeah, I don't know either. I just... They, I just thought it looked funny. Yeah. Along those lines, you sh- if you see smoke from coming under under a door, don't open the door. <laughs> yeah, they run right to it and just open that door, don't they? <laughs> Although, speaking of that, yeah, this knockout gas works on both humans and kaiju. And were you, like me, thinking to yourself you know, when, the, when the kaiju are getting taken out by this thing and poor Rodan ends up falling out of the sky on top of Angerus. Yeah, the one that you definitely don't want to fall on. Yeah, I'm just like, ow. Mm, yeah. Oh, it's like falling out of bed of nails. Ow. Yeah, they, I think that's maybe, I think that was probably intentional that to have that image elicited. I do like that Angerus is back. He is back for the first time since 1955. I'm actually a big fan of uh, the sequence when the humans are attempting to locate the Kelak base and Godzilla shows up and scares them away, that entire sequence is done so incredibly well with how they put in the special effects with the live-action footage and how well they're, they're cut in together. And, yeah, in the, I mean, in the forest kind of area. That, oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it, it's just remarkable how, how well all of that fits together. I mean, Godzilla doesn't have really direct interactions with them, but the the fact that though all of that footage was put together as well as it is it really helps to cre- you know it just almost seamlessly creates the illusion that everything is in the same shot together yeah and that he's right behind them and he's right behind them mm-hmm. i just i love that and i i literally love this part toward the end of the movie when Katsuo and his crew are getting themselves into a heap of trouble on the SY3, and he has this action hero moment where he pretty much says, in an hour, we're either going to do this or we'll be dead. Mm-hmm. As this little rah-rah yeah. rally and cry telling his crew, we're going to go do this. It's It, it helps to, to amplify the energy at that point in the movie. It seems that most of the things that I find funny are in the English dubbed version, particularly the voice for uh, Akira Kubo's character. Like I know there's one time where he says something like, there's a UFO out there. And and I'm like, what am I listening to? Am I listening to John Wayne? (laughs) You you practically expect him to say like pilgrim (laughs) at the end of the sentences. And it's, it's a, it's kind of just, no, not really getting me into it. But the, the one, though, is uh, at 31.30 into the movie where this American actor does the voice of this guy at the police station. And we suddenly go out of nowhere to like 9.0 on, on the ridiculousness, goofy Richter scale, like out of nowhere. But it's, it's, when, every time that happened, when I saw the English version, I thought, wow, way to take me out of the movie completely. Right there was that voice. Another thing that just ends up being funny is the scene where Katsuo has the laser gun and he's trying to cut 
the wire, you know, the, the, the device off. Yeah, the control device. Uh-huh. And the music is so tense, too. I love like, the music We, in we that. never hear this music again. No. But They're, I, it's kind of homaged in one of the 90s movies, but that's about it. Yeah, the scene goes over four minutes long. Yeah. The, the entire sequence. It's a pretty long sequence. Yeah. I don't know if I had seen this in a theater. I almost would have been like, get on with it a little. But, I mean, I know that it's a pretty big deal. But at the same time... It's like, wow, this is really, they're putting a lot of gravity uh, and tension in, into this scene. They most definitely are. And uh, I love how, how the, the scene is edited where it's cutting between the close-up of the laser and the co- close-up of Katsuo and the close-up of the device. And it starts to wobble more as time goes on. Too, and the the wire is catching on fire, so they're not sure if they're going to be able to sustain the level of intensity with the laser in order to get it cut off. And I we mean, even have the other actors like, oh no, they probably failed, and and they 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 do a, a sort of giving up thing, and then we go back, and then we get to see uh, Kyoko go. We we get to get her sigh, her sigh of relief at the end. Yeah. Yeah, but it's actually one of the the more memorable sequences I think in the the movie in terms of the the human action. Speaking of the of the music, I think the score in this movie is actually one of the best things about it. There isn't necessarily a lot of new music in this, but what the music that is in it is some of the most seminal Godzilla music. I think in the entire franchise, you know, we get a new version of the Monster Zero March, most notably for you know for the opening credits, and it's used a couple of times in the movie itself. And I think its use in this really solidifies its place in the library of Godzilla music. Yeah, he does a pretty good job, uh, Ikafube. I think at at some point. I wish that the main theme wasn't restated so much because we do kind of get a lot of that. But uh, the, the music itself is good, though. As we've touched on a little bit earlier, one of the things that this film is well known for is introducing Monsterland, or later on it'll be called Monster Island. This idea that all of the kaiju have been corralled into one central location where... They can be contained and they can be studied. And it in later movies, it provides a, a very nice launching point for where Godzilla you know, can come from in order to go save Japan. But in here, it's presented almost like, like a zoo. Heck, it even kind of predates Jurassic Park in a lot of ways. It made me think of that a little bit. Yeah. So there, there's some similarity, yeah, similarities here, except obviously it's not a theme park. It's even though the name Monsterland sounds like it should be a theme park. <laughs> yeah, that's why Monster Island or Ogasawara is not, it's Yeah, it better, sounds but. better. Yeah, but but uh, like I said, it's a it's a very important concept um, in these films. They create a, a sort of home for all of the monsters to be based at. So they essentially are giving Godzilla home, but they're also able to unify all of these different monsters in, in one place as a almost as a method of utility. Yeah. But I will say, though, that final shot, that last sequence in the film, that 
it's this it's this long distance shot of Godzilla and Minya on the island. I feel like with the way that the, you know that that shot ended, if the, since this was intended to be the last movie, that that would have been a great image to end on, and just you more or less say, and the monsters live happily ever after on their little island. Mm-hmm. The other cool place that we have in this movie is there's a lunar base, and this is actually pretty unique in the in the Godzilla film since this takes place, you know, in the future because we never see anything like this again. And it, it was it was really cool to see. I love the set design actually, and both on Monsterland and on uh, the lunar base. I kept drawing comparisons to Star Trek when I was seeing it. It seemed like a very Star Trekian sort of set design. Yeah, particularly Star Trek the original was series. Yeah. Point, yeah. yeah, yeah, particularly the original series. Also. I love the the retro futuristic tech that we see in this because even though this is 30 years in the future with the ability to radio across incredibly long distances everyone is still using rotary phones. I do however like the spacesuits. Yeah, they're really cool too. Yeah, the, the yellow spacesuits. I almost want to have one of them. They they're it's very distinct. I don't think you I can't think of any other movies that that we end up seeing suits like that at all. It's Sort of, I, it, that's maybe retro futuristic as well. Yeah, there's a lot of great use of color in this movie throughout the whole thing. Yeah, there is. It's interesting that this movie is called Destroy All Monsters, but Gator gets destroyed. <laughs> well, they. I think early on in the movie, they probably were considering destroying all the monsters although it's right that's probably where it comes from yeah but it's also it's also a very catchy title then when Ghidorah does die then they have the we get that lord of the rings return of the king ground falling away into the enemy uh, <laughs> yeah feature it's yeah interesting. but uh, speaking of that yeah uh, we should we should definitely talk about you know, the climax of this movie because it's it's the high point i think of this entire film and it's if you really want to see the Subaraya school of special effects being employed at really the peak of what it could do, you watch this sequence because we have we have several puppets and I think at least five or six suit actors all running around in this massive battle. I don't even want to think about the level of coordination that would have had to have gone into this. It was probably a whole lot. You know, it seems like they threw everything but the kitchen sink into this. Yeah, I mean, so you have the suit actors having to remember fight choreography. You have puppeteers that have to remember choreography. And then not only do they have to remember the choreography, but they have to shoot it and set it up in just such a way that they can put in the the animated effects in post-production. Yeah, I don't the, know the how more, they could have done yeah, it. Yeah, the more kaiju and the more suit actors you have to have in it, the the more complex it becomes by a lot, just because of, a, of all the coordination that it takes to, to get everything in the right place. Yeah, and but the, and the thing is, is that it also, it allows us to see all of the monsters really be showcased, really see what they can do. You really, you get to see a bit more of their individual personalities start to come out. and And you get to see them fight easily probably the the best kaiju battle really in the entire series maybe even all of kaiju films i mean it's such an epic piece 
you get to see Gorosaurus do you know his kangaroo kick. You get Godzilla's atomic ray, Angerus being Angerus, and just going right after Ghidorah, and it's just all of this stuff. Minya even gets to do the arguably the killing blow on yeah, Ghidorah. He gets to it's nuts. Finish off one of the heads. Yeah, that way with mm-hmm. his smoke ring. I was like, you know, at that point, Ghidorah is so close to death that if a smoke ring's gonna finish him off. <laughs> that's not good which is funny because i think minya spends most of his time kind of staying back kind of letting them all do it and then he just kind of runs in at the end <laughs> yeah he was like getting up the gumption to fight the whole time and then ends with that <laughs> yeah they were very thorough with Ghidorah. they made sure he was dead yeah and when you're gonna have action be at the, at the forefront of a movie so much you, you want to give the audience all, all the all that you can Really, if this had been the last movie in the entire franchise, it would have been a great note to end on with the just how huge it was and the big battle at the end. And we see the end of Ghidorah. The monsters are we're more or less told the monsters will live happily on the island. It, it would have been a good run. I think everyone could look at this and say this was a good franchise, you know, if it ended like this. It's funny. There are a lot of different times that they thought that that this you know this movie or this movie is going to be the last one of the series, and because uh, like Son of Godzilla just before this was also possibly considered to be the last one. Uh, but then th- this happens many times in the series, though, where it's like okay, it's wrapped up, and then they're like, uh, now let's, let's go back. Not. Let's go yeah. back. Yeah, but like this would have been, I think, a great one. Like I said, to end it on. Yeah, definitely. It has a good um, exclamation point at the end. Mm-hmm. Going along with the futuristic sense of this movie, it, mind control, it's a good sci-fi theme to use in a Godzilla film. It makes sense. Uh, it keeps things interesting. It's a very, it's a pretty 60s idea to have in movies. In a lot of ways. It, but it's, a, it's also a very timeless theme, I would say, as well. Yeah, I mean, it really couples along with brainwashing. It's that kind of a that kind of a dynamic. Yeah, and one of the things that makes the the mind control interesting in this is that it's not just used on the monsters; it's used on the humans as well. Yeah, and it, I think maybe somebody probably even asked them, you know, how how come aliens can control the kaiju, but how come they just don't control the humans while they're at it? Yeah. And so it seems like a very logical sort of progression, you know, to take it that way. And it makes sense. The, 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 the Kelox have such a, a low population that they needed to use mind controlled minions in order to carry out their plans. Because if you look, when the bad guys are doing something in this movie, it's almost always the mind controlled human minions the Keylocks are not getting directly involved. They're always sending people to do stuff. And it makes sense if they if there's environmental problems for them and their their population is low. Yeah, they can't just go out themselves. Yeah, and that's and they use the monsters initially as a distraction to keep everyone looking away from Izu when they make their base, and then it also gives them an opportunity to use these very powerful creatures as weapons of mass destruction, essentially, to weaken Earth's infrastructure, to make the invasion that much easier. 
the only real weapon that they have of their own is the fire dragon, that flaming flying saucer at the end. Which is also equally not explained. Yeah. I don't care because it's not that kind of a movie. Yeah. It's the use of mind control in this is actually a bit horrific at points. I had actually kind of forgotten that there is actually a point where their mind control is so absolute they can force somebody to commit suicide. That's a little bit terrifying. It's it's a very dark theme actually to you know to touch upon, which definitely fits with Kimura and fits with this film. Along with that, a scene that this this film is known for, and I still kind of wonder to myself, was it really necessary to do this? And that is when Katsuo rips Kyoko's earrings off because he somehow figures out that that's where the devices controlling her were. I read about that scene before I ever saw the movie. And then when I saw it, I thought to myself, wow, that looks painful. Was that really even necessary? <laughs> oh, I mean, it goes along with all the rest of the stuff that's in the movie. We, we get to have an action-filled, gun-filled you know, we have a few James Bondian scenes in uh, in in this. We they they get to they get to put a lot in in there, and I think the, I think the earrings, I think that's a clever way to to have a for the mind control. I think that works, and then of course the question then becomes how are you going to disable them and bring her out of it? I think this would be the only way that you could do that. And yeah, I, and like I don't think he's just gonna. He wouldn't have been able to go up to her and just say, oh, uh, take those off for me, please. You know? Yeah. And so I think you got to go with got to go with what you have. And I think it's is dramatic. I mean, I think the women in the audience would feel like, oh, wow, that is painful. Yeah. But uh, it is a little bit of a shock, too, as well. She does do a good job acting, too. She's uh, her reaction when she comes out of it looks good. Um, I think she's she's one of the better actresses uh, in the show series for this. Yeah, I would agree with you there. This is another movie besides Astro Monster where we have a, a theme of Japanese technology saving the world. And I think that, that sort of plugs into the technological national spirit that the Japanese still have and have always had throughout ever since the end of the war, for sure, where um, they... they are able to showcase their technology and how well they can build things and uh, solve problems. And it's uh, it, this happens in American movies a lot, where American scientists are the, are the geniuses at, um, at large, and they are able to invent technology or, or do something else to be able to scientifically take care of a problem. And I think with, with this, it's, it's another one, just like... A, in Astro Monster with the frequency that, that they uh, attached to the devices that they were able to project that frequency out and, and take care of the aliens. And in this, we have the, the, the technology is actually mind control uh, device for all of the monsters, which that's obviously a, a huge feat there, but uh, we, it, it is definitely another, another thematic sort of a component here where we have a lot of, really good minds technologically in Japan and they end up saving the whole world because of uh, their ability uh, at uh, technology. One last thing that I wanted to bring up about this movie, as I mentioned with, you know, with King Kong versus Godzilla, there were several trends that have become very popular with Hollywood in the last 10, 15, 20 years, but Toho beat Hollywood to them 
uh, with King Kong versus Godzilla was nostalgia. With this one, it's the shared universe. Now we've had some kaiju crossovers before in the other one in the previous movies, but with this one, this is essentially the Avengers of Toho kaiju films. In fact, I was starting to notice a lot of parallels between the Avengers film and and this one. So not only do you have the this multitude of characters, in this case the kaiju coming together, the other things that the, that they have in common is this is an alien invasion movie. And in the end, they end up battling a villain, in this case, Ghidorah. In the Avengers case, it was Loki, who had appeared in one of the previous movies. So it's, it's very interesting. The big difference is that I think this is just something that Toho ended up doing organically, whereas with the Marvel films, it was planned this way. So that's probably the biggest difference. But the fact remains... This is this huge crossover movie that was this culmination of everything else that had come before it. Also, you also have an instance where the heroes, you know, the kaiju, are being controlled by the villains, whereas in the, the Avengers, it was just one of them. In that case, it was Hawkeye being under the control of Loki. This concludes part two of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we examine uh, an issue that was either brought up by the film or was going on at the time that the film was released. And in this case, it's uh, something that was going on at the time the film was released, which is the uh, student protests of the late 1960s. And I mean, th this was a big deal uh, culturally in Japan. There were a lot of things going on in the whole world at, at this point. It was very much a year of student protests and uprisings. Yeah, and you had the, the revolution in uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968. The anti-war uh, protests here in the States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Vietnam coming to a head in a lot of cases. Um, there was a lot going on. and we, But a huge thing about this, though, was that there was a big generational change taking place and it's hard to uh, this this change wasn't very gradual it seemed to happen all at once and it seemed to cause quite a bit of upheaval just looking at how movies changed so dramatically from say 1965 to 1970 movies changed dramatically not just in japan but in the united states and all over the world finally products and and movies and music started to get to the forefront that were made for the next generation and not people who had lived through World War II. And so th this transition was, uh, was rocky, but it was also uh, something that needed to happen because the younger generation did need to find themselves somehow. It's also very indicative of Japan at this point. Uh, they were by this point, they were out of that time of transition, but we're talking about young people who the only world that they had known was post-war Japan. Whereas you know, we talked about uh, the, the protests for the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. Those were young people who had a frame of reference. They grew up in pre-war Japan. They lived through the war. They lived through the occupation. And they were concerned that the signing of the treaty would take them back to that. 
that is not the sort of reasoning that was going through these young people's minds. It's amazing to me how a difference of less than a decade can make, but it's very much indicative of where Japan was at the time. Yeah, there were protests with uh, the 1970 renewal of the uh, security treaty, but they were um, not so intense as uh, in 1960. One thing that really interested me was how the Japanese young people during this year and in the late 60s were very different from the American counterparts, the European counterparts, even though they were the same age, living in a similar society. But Japan is so unique. And like, for instance, the the protesters and the student movement in Japan, they weren't, at the beginning especially, they weren't into long hair and they weren't into rock music. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And instead it was it was folk music. In the United States, that was the rock music movement was gigantic. It was partially because rock music was, I think it was seen as being seen as a bit of a sign of opulence. You know, guitars were expensive. You're talking about young people who would be making an average of about 80 US dollars a month. And to buy a good guitar, you'd be looking at about $50. So it would be eating up more than half of their paycheck. And since these were students who were adhering to a lot of Marxist ideals, they they shied away from things like that. Yeah, oddly enough, the rock music seemed more capitalistic uh, from yeah. their perspective. Yeah. Another big thing going on at the time, of course, is Vietnam, and uh, Japan did react to Vietnam just about the same way that the United States uh, young people did. There was a lot of conflict and uh, the Japanese were roundly very much against the tactics of the Vietnam War to begin with but the fact that they were economically you know getting some prosperity out of this I mean uh, that might have engendered some kind of guilt at some point yeah it very much did the which is one of the marked I think one of the marked differences between the sentiments between the Japanese young people and uh, American young people also, young people, they were, uh, they were trying to deal with how much Japan had changed in such a short period of time, comparatively. And, and all of this prosperity, really high economic growth, and the, something that had not been normal in Japan for a long time had finally become very commonplace, which was the mass consumption society. You're talking about a lot of young people who were raised a certain way. They were raised in the more traditional sort of Japanese sort of way. They were told to be frugal, to be thrifty. And you can see this reflected in you know, a film like, say, Good Morning, which was a movie you you actually showed me a few months ago, Brian. What was the name of the director on that one again? Uh, Yasujiro Ozu. Yeah, he was, he was kind of a big deal. And one of the... It was from 1959. So, And most of the characters in that were were kids so they probably would have been about the 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 age that the young people in these protests were and in that one one of the i mean it seems almost seems silly but one of the big plot points in that is people being suspicious of uh one of the housewives in their neighborhood because she has a washing machine because it seems like too much how can she afford yeah it's extravagant how can she afford that 
And it was very indicative of how the Japanese lived at the time. Well, you fast forward nearly a decade and suddenly there's this huge economic growth. So now these young people are finding themselves with more money than they know what to do with. They're overwhelmed by it. It goes against how they were raised. You know, they're being told, yeah, you can be extravagant now. And they, they just didn't know what to do with themselves. And I would imagine this also sort of links into them investi- investigating themselves, taking stock of themselves. And they have to think, well, yes, we have all of this prosperity everywhere, but are we still, d- does that make us happy necessarily? Or is it just a band-aid on something else? Or is it just not direct, it's just indirect instead. And we just have to, like, this isn't enough. This isn't enough to make us happy. It was very much a generational existential crisis for them. Another factor along with this is what something I would call maybe the, the monotony of modernity. Because I, I remember some of the buildings in this town that were built in the late 60s. Wow. Uh, talk about not pretty. Talk about so utterly functional and just uh, boring, horrible to look at takes away, it almost just saps the creative mind. You almost feel like Bartleby. That, that's what these young people sort of found them at, themselves in because they, they, they end up in urban centers, new urban centers like Tokyo. And After they had they been are, raised in the countryside. Often, yeah. And, and like with all of this prosperity, a lot of kids ended going ended up going into college. A lot of uh, young people who probably their other family members older than them possibly did not go to college. So they were probably the first ones in their family to go to college. And then they had to go through all of these horrible entrance exams that we, they exist in Japan to this day about how much competition there is to try to get into Tokyo yeah. University in, in Tokyo, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and they were feeling this pressure. And they were feeling this pressure as young as junior high. Yeah, that was the other thing. They were they were telling them you have to do well on these so you can get into university. But it wasn't just the pressure to go to university. There was a post war baby boom in Japan. So not only did they was there more pressure to go to university, there was a greater amount of competition. competition. Uh-huh. So that only piled on the pressure. It wasn't just enough to, you know, say, get A minuses. If you wanted to make sure you got into university, it had to be A's or A pluses. It, you had to go one step beyond just being excellent. Yeah, and all that pressure is going to go somewhere. And, and then to complicate matters, when they did get to university, it wasn't what they wanted it to be. They were hoping that it would be like how it was for their parents' generation, that the universities would be these bastions of truth and these great centers of learning. And instead they get there and the class sizes are gigantic. They can't really get to know their professors on a personal level and feel like they're being personally invested in. Yeah, it was a factory. Yeah, it was like a factory. They were just getting mass-produced lectures on everything. So not only was there all this pressure, it didn't meet their expectations. And then living in urban centers didn't probably didn't uh, fit well either, and partially it was because the, their 
the places they had to stay in were so small. They didn't have any personal space. But at the same time, they're young people. They, you should probably have some personal space. And then there, there's very few places to go. And, and it's just being surrounded by all of this. It's dehumanizing. And, and so that goes against what they want to think and be, too. And so, and so it's like this big disconnect between what they wanted their lives to be like and this kind of depressing reality. And that's for a lot of these students, they were joining these movements because they needed something to do. They needed something to give them purpose, to give them focus. And something to get mad about at the same time. Yeah. And because you had all of, they needed an object, I would say, for their discontentment, for their anger, their disappointment, because a lot of the things that they were protesting had to do with the university system itself, saying that this needs to change. It needs to be reformed because this is not what we wanted, and this is not good for us as human beings. Yeah, and every every generation of young people, the, the a lot of them, they wanted to have something in their lives that they would make better, something to reform and to, and to improve. And instead, with the university system, they encounter this monolithic just beast that refuses to reform within itself, even though they could probably even tell themselves that things needed to change. And so it was the students that kept pressuring and saying, look, the, you need to do this better. We expect better, and we want this to be better. The protest groups that the, for, uh, the students performed were called the Zen Kyoto, and there were, they were popping up at pretty much all of the major universities in Japan, places like Nihon University, the University of Tokyo. They lacked unity at first. Uh, they were very particular about what were the, about certain issues. They did start to come to coalesce a little bit better as time went on, but for the most part, they were very self-contained uh, groups. It was not necessarily a unified movement. Each each of these groups, they had their own campus stuff that they would probably do as far as those issues. And, and so like to try to make these groups have more continuity, you probably had to pick bigger issues like Vietnam War and those, those kinds of security things. treaty. Yes. Yeah, security treaty, not particularly being happy about the conservative government, uh, stuff like that. A term that started to become very common and popular with these with the people in these movements was self-negation. It came about because you had these students who had busted their butts to get into these universities through the exam wars only to arrive and feel disappointed and then seek to either, some would say reform, some would even go so far as to say to destroy those very institutions that they worked as hard as they did to get into there. But there was also a sense of guilt attached to it as well, feeling like that the financial and economic prosperity that they were experiencing was undeserved or had been achieved through immoral means, in particular, having, you know, the prosperity that had come about because of the Vietnam War. And they felt like it was not something that Japan should be profiting from, benefiting from. The way that this movement seems to have worked a lot of the times is that was it was a reaction to certain things. Like it was a reaction to capitalist uh, permeation of the economy. 
it was a reaction to the heavily industrialized country that Japan had turned into in such a short period of time. Like they're the, so, you know, the phrase of, you know, like I can't recognize my own country anymore. There's a, there's a little bit of an echo of that even. And a lot of this isn't really going for something, but instead it's going against something, you know, it's anti-capitalist. It it is, uh, they, they are against the fact that all of this industrialism was just everywhere and they felt cramped in where they were living and they just didn't, the, the new life that they found themselves in didn't match the kind of life that not only what they didn't want to have experienced, but they also, it, it didn't match them. Like their mentality and the mentality of the country that they lived in were two very different things and they wanted to change that. Yeah, and because the big issues were only really ancillary to what they were primarily getting at, was which was anti-university uh, and those kind of yeah. things. But the the big issues that seem to unite, I think, a lot of the student movement in the United States, I don't know if that was as big of a uniting force in Japan, because because here we you know we had to deal with the draft, and there was a, there was way more of a direct connection to the Vietnam War. Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah. Japan was, was getting some profit off of it. Yes, we were basing a lot of our military there, of course, but we weren't drafting the Japanese. And so that's different there. And, and plus, I think America and, uh, yeah, Western Europe, they, they were, that was a lot of the center of, of where the counterculture occurred. And, and Japan wasn't really an originator of that counterculture. Yeah. Instead, that... They, it started over here and then it migrated over there. But like many things with Japan, uh, the student movement at the end of the day in Japan was quite a bit more conservative Mm -hmm. than its counterparts in the rest of the world. So like what kind of media ended up being benefited because of this movement? The students in these movements were very fond of things like Yakuza films, especially ones that dealt with older gangsters who were trying to preserve the value, the old-timey values against the younger gangsters. Or they also enjoyed manga or Japanese comic books that were about these young, impoverished heroes who were triumphing over rich antagonists of some kind. Yeah, so anti-capitalist motivations. Yeah, and even though those heroes had aspirations of becoming more prosperous, they would always continue whatever rigorous training that they were doing. You know, if it was a, a sports story or something along those lines, some would almost say as a as a form of self punishment for the fact that they had achieved such a high status. And I guess that's one reason why this movement didn't seem to last very long. Overall, I mean, there were there were. Uh, takeovers of administration buildings there were some pretty heated protests there was violence with the police etc and this made this definitely had an impact but at the same time it doesn't seem to have really affected a lot of people at least for long enough i mean the thing is movements centered around anger and opposition almost always burn out very quickly because they don't have something to latch onto to a goal to push toward. It's just, we are anti this, we are anti that, but they don't advocate for any sort of 
change, no specific change. Well, they, they wanted reform, but at the same time, it's, it's very, very hard to reform some things. And they often try to outlast whoever is protesting against them. Yeah. And so was, uh, even though a lot of their anger was, I, I would say, justified, but at the same time, it's very hard to go up against that kind of a thing. Yeah. And ultimately, there were several reasons that led to these movements dying out, one of which being that uh, the public sentiment eventually turned against the Zen Kyoto. They supported them at first, but then as time went on, started to see them as childish and rebellious. And then there were no successor movements. Most of these students, by the time they were out of university, were preoccupied with with their jobs and taking care of their families. The, the wages were so good that the women were able to stay home and be homemakers, and that helped to preserve the traditional nuclear family in Japan. Another thing going on is that when you're, when you're supporting Marxist ideals in a society like this, you end up running against a pretty harsh reality because th- there's money everywhere, there are great jobs, and the economy's doing wonderfully. And, and so pushing Marxism under that kind of a of a of an environment that's really going to put you in a rather troublesome situation. I would suppose that if if you look in many times throughout history no matter what country it is, if you think wow, th- this movement really rose during this period of time, I wonder why it went out. Prosperity is one thing that that really takes care of movements. And so it's like wow, imagine if the economy had tanked in this period of time for this country, that could have been extremely bad. And usually you think about it in those kind of terms. You don't think, Oh great. It would have been wonderful for Marxists during these periods of time. But you, you, instead you come up against, Oh yeah, well they, uh, it would be rather hard to, to be in a university on your way to probably a pretty good job and then turn around and, and keep, keep damning the society that allowed you these things. So, I mean, so yeah, you'd probably end up feeling guilt, but I I think the anger wouldn't be as long lived. No. One issue that was going on that though the movie kind of brought up itself was uh, the Ogasawara islands. And uh, it was actually a reason for this. There's a reason for why Ogasawara is a uh, particular focus point in this film. Because uh, in 1968, the Ogasawara Islands were reverted back to Japanese control. And this was another step in Japan gaining some more normality in the post-war era. I imagine the train of thought w- with having these islands in the movie was, oh, well, we got the Ogasawara Islands back, and Japan has made another step in getting total control over itself back, and so w- let's feature them in the movie. Uh, interestingly... Monster Island is made an international location, administered directly by the UN, which many Japanese, being on the staff of the monster lo- monster control location, there are a lot of Japanese there doing that. And the island is used as a way to control the monsters. It's um, it's a method of like disaster control, or another way to put it, it's like a containment and research facility. Uh, sort of like the ultimate zoo, I guess. As long as the monsters remain in the island, the world gets to be safe. It's also interesting that Iwo Jima is where SY3 yeah. and all these rockets fly out of 
And, yeah. uh, and that's, that, that was also another island that reverted back to Japanese control in the same year this movie was released. And that would be something that would be very familiar, particularly to Americans, because of the the famous battle that yeah, was the fought there during the war. Yeah, so they have, history. Yeah, there's, there's definitely some history there. And it also makes sense from a practical sense, because the another name for the islands is Bonin, which is derived from an old Japanese word that means uninhabited. So they don't have to worry about making people vacate these islands. They can just put the monsters on there and not have to worry about anything. Yeah, they're out quite a ways from uh, Japan. They're about 640 miles south of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So they're relatively far off. Um, and there isn't very much else around them. Like the Gasawara Trench is like right around there. Yeah. And only two of the islands to this day are inhabited. Uh, it's, it's Chichijima and Hahajima. <laughs> the, the names make me laugh. <laughs> but... Uh, and there's only about 2,400 people between both of those. Yeah, I wouldn't want to have to travel that long to actually get to Tokyo. Um, it's probably not the easiest easiest way to do it. No, and uh, they were returned because after the war they were they were claimed by the U.S. Navy and took them that long to finally just return them to Japan, which is interesting because Japan and had made several claims to the islands in the century since their discovery, along with some European nations. I think another reason was that uh, this was before Okinawa had been reverted back. That's not for a few more years. And I think perhaps uh, the Ogasawara and Iwo Jima, that was possibly uh, reverted back to Japan earlier in order to sort of satisfy the, the you know the need of, of getting Japan more under control of itself in, in a different way than actually giving back Okinawa. Would so you it, was a, it was like a present. Yeah. Literally well, how they how they phrased it. Would you say that including the islands in this movie is maybe a, a small expression of Japanese nationalism then? Yeah, probably. Um it is definitely a, a feel I would definitely feel a little bit more patriotic uh after that exchange took place. It's you know, giving giving your country uh more uh you're able to conduct your own business. Yeah, I think that's definitely a factor. There's also the fact that this topic had very much been covered in the newspapers and in the news in Japan and and so th- th- probably for at least a year, a couple years about uh, the status of these islands and, and when will they be given back. And, and so this was in the national consciousness too, at that point. And so the, I think it's cool that this movie is bringing those islands right back to Japan in the form of uh, a movie as big as this. And it's, it's also interesting because we're, we're technically seeing uh, the, these islands 30 years after they're, they've been returned to Japan and finding out that they're, They've been put to good use. Yeah, very special use. And on to our last issue uh, regarding economic growth. This is the biggest percentage that the Japanese economy has ever grown by in one year. In in 1968, Japan grew by 12.88% in their GDP, which that is absolutely amazing. And it was at this point that Japan became the second largest economy in the world, passing West Germany. And which they had their own economic miracle, but Japan's was, was even larger. And so it, it, this is the ascension of Japan to become an economic powerhouse for sure. There was still a lot of economic growth 
that happened the next year too. It didn't quite get that high, but uh, it, it was very high for a, another year. After this, there are still some impressive years, but uh, we start to notice the, the downward trend. But at the same time, as the economy grew during the 70s and 80s, it's a lower percentage, but what? The number is way higher. And so the economy is still growing great. It's just that these numbers for the GDP percentage aren't, uh, are, aren't as great. But at the same time, the GDP itself is still going way up. Because like 4% of way more of that is still just is still better uh, or at least just as good. And so we have uh, Japan really ascending at this point in time. Whew. All right. We covered a lot in this episode. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm looking forward to our next one, even though some of you out there might not be because this was not the last Godzilla film. Uh, our next one will be the infamous... All Monsters Attack, a.k.a. Godzilla's Revenge. A very different movie from this one. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara!